Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words. Joining me now, my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. We're digging deep into the interview archives, as always. First up is an interview that we did in 1979 with Tom Petty. It was upon the release Mm. of Damn the Torpedoes, the album that really launched him into the stratosphere. And of course, in light of his recent passing, we have lots to say about Tom's career. I also want to play you a great Stevie Nicks clip about Tom. Look forward to hearing it. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. And it's from, it's, it's actually not from our archives. It's from the documentary about him called Running Down a Dream, which I hope you've seen. It's about four hours long. It is fantastic. I have not seen it, but I've read the book. All right. Also, Christopher, we'll talk about one of the most contentious interviews you have ever done. You talk about it in your book, and we're going to hear it today. Plus, we're going back to 1980 with one of the greatest songs ever. It's from a guy who was a groundbreaker in prog rock, and just when it seemed like he had lost the plot by dressing up too much as a flower, he completely reinvented himself. (laughs) I'm sure you know who it is by now, and I became a huge fan around the time of this this song in, in particular. So the song that helped him do it is the focus of today's segment. And finally, a very funny story of rock star mistaken identity told by a pretty famous rock star himself. Okay, so first up is Tom Petty. This is from late 1979, early 1980 interview. Petty has so far had four very minor hits. Breakdown, American Girl, I Need to Know, and Listen to Her Heart. Which is funny, because those are classics now, but at the time, they really bubbled under. They only glanced the bottom of the top 40 on the charts. Um, and, And at this point, he's had major record company problems, and he briefly outlined the problems that he had. What happened was... And he says that it really influenced the songwriting and recording of the album, Damn the Torpedoes. You gotta remember, we were going to court in the morning and making records at night. It, it was a bad time, you know? I mean, I hate to get into negative things, but it, it wasn't no fun. It was like, uh, I would equate it to to maybe, you know, to having a, an auto wreck and, and being hospitalized for a year or something. Does, but, does something like that, as traumatic as that, affect your, your songwriting? Yeah, I think it did. And I think it was like, I always felt that my only defense here is, is to write and to try to get this all this anxiety and depression out by writing the songs you know and some of the songs that came out that, that I didn't put on the album were just too morbid you know I, I just thought well it's so morbid that I don't want anybody to, to have to deal with it so just to recap this is an interview with Tom Petty from 1979 early 1980 and of course with all the backroom problems and behind the scenes drama Tom Petty's salvation in that time was performing live yeah people's band in the sense that the, the kids have, have made us happen, you know. 
and the critics. The critics were always there for us, and they've, they've always, the press has been very good to us, you know. And that album, Damn the Torpedoes, really had a lot of different sounds on the album, and uh, Tom spoke specifically about the song Louisiana Rain. Yeah, we wanted this album uh, very, you know, in a, we just wanted it to cover some, some more ground than we had in the past. I, I think that albums are more entertaining if, if you go through, you know, a few different textures rather than, than one sort of, you know, one space and just hold it. Those are, sometimes that's fine, but I, I get bored with that. Uh-huh. And, and we had a long debate about Louisiana Rain. That was really Jimmy Iovine, uh, who co-produced the album. That song had, had been cut uh, by Bonnie Tyler before we did the record. And he heard her version, and he just kept bothering me about this song and saying, you've got to do this song. And uh, then we said, well, okay, well, if, if you're not going to shut up, we'll do it. You know, <laughs> So we did it, and then we thought, great. you know. And it's weird. It's almost a country song in a way. A country song, sure, but it was a really good one. Petty was proud of his band, even though they were still relatively new. Yeah, three and a half years we've been together, and we intend to stay together. You know, we, we look at this as a band, you know, and uh, with me being the primary writer and, and the singer. But uh, I think sometimes there's a misconception, you know, but they've always been there, and, and they, they really contribute a lot to the, the sound. Once people have seen us live, they understand that a lot better, I think, you know, that it is a group. There you go, Christopher. Isn't that interesting? He's only three and a half years into it, and he's so proud, and little does he know he still has another 36 and a half years to go with this band. Yeah, I actually saw the band in that time, and they were fantastic then. And then, lo and behold, as you say, it turned into 40 years of rock and roll history. And just by chance, I saw what turned out to be one of the very last shows they did at the Hollywood Bowl very recently. It was actually at my daughter's urging. He was kind of on her list of classic artists that she really wanted to see, and she talked me into going, and I am so glad I did. He was in fine form. The band were great. And the thing that struck me was just the pure joy of rock and roll. That's what he brought to the show that he did, and he you know, suffused the whole place with it, and it was an amazing program. You know, I was looking through some old uh, emails between you and I just to get caught up on a couple of things, and I came across the email, Christopher, where you said, hey, I'm going to email you a little bit later, but I'm seeing Tom Petty tonight. And it was just shocking to me. Uh, It was shocking to me. It actually made me a little bit emotional because in that moment, Tom Petty was still alive. You know, it it just kind of brought it home to me, and it was uh, was quite sad. There's a podcast out of uh, Boston on WBEZ called um, Sound Opinions, and these guys have been at it for years. And they played a clip from an old uh, Petty interview, I think from maybe the early 2000s. And he was talking about how, as a songwriter, when you know you've written something special, that rare and glorious feeling that you get, and I know that feeling. Mm -hmm. And he said the first time that ever happened for him was the song American Girl, which coincidentally was the last encore at his last show at the Hollywood Bowl. Oh, you know, so much has been said and written about him in the, in the several weeks since his passing. And, you know, it's hard to top any of it, but I thought it would be really good to go back to right around the time when he was just starting to peak and was really hitting his stride with the songs from Damn the Torpedoes, including Don't Do Me Like That and Refugee and how those songs just flew out of the radio when they came out. And it was so, it was such powerful 
pop music, you know, um, rock and roll music disguised as pop. And uh, it, it was so fantastic and it sounded so great back in 1979, 1980. Uh, there's one clip I want to play for you, Christopher. And um, I did hear it the day after his passing and it reminded me of um, the documentary that I was talking about earlier, Running Down a Dream. And it was um, Stevie right. Nicks talking about how she wanted to join the Heartbreakers. I think I started to become aware of Tom Petty around 1977. 1978, big fan of Tom Petty. If Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers had said, leave Fleetwood Mac and come and join us, I would probably have joined Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. She said it all the time. I'm going to leave Fleetwood Mac and join the Heartbreakers. And we'd say, yeah, but there aren't any girls in the Heartbreakers. And she'd say, no, but I really want to join the band. Stevie was at the height of her success. We didn't want to take on someone else's trip. We had our own thing. But then she started to campaign for me to write her a song. And I, I, no, I don't have time. Please just write me a song. So she wore me down. I pretty much credit Tom with my solo career. And he'll laugh and be sweet and not conceited about it. But it really is true. <laughs> so there you go. She really wanted to be in the band. <laughs> She, she begged him for a song. You can tell they had a real connection. They, there were some great songs that they did together, including, of course, Stop Dragging My Heart Around and a song called Insider from uh, Hard Promises, which is just a stunningly sad song and so beautiful. And they sounded so great together. Well, there's lots of stuff about them in uh, a petty biography, by the way, written by a guy named Warren Zanes. Um, he was in a group in the 80s called the Del Fuegos. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, yeah. Um, they kind of had a moment. They toured with Petty and they became friends. And so he got the gig of writing uh, the biography, and uh, it was no holds barred, but it was also very respectful and, and uh, appreciative as well. So it's, it's a really, I highly recommend it. So if anyone needs to get caught up then, we're watching the uh, Running Down a Dream documentary, and we're reading the Warren Zanes book. And I have a story I don't know if I'm supposed to tell. <laughs> um, I was living up the street uh, in L.A. from a very well-known record producer, and I got invited over to his place one day, and I said, "Do you? So do you do your work at home? Do you record at home?" And he's like, "Well, I used to." I said, "Oh, well, what happened?" He said, "Well, my wife just got sick of coming into the kitchen at three in the morning and finding Tom and Stevie smoking weed and raiding the fridge, <laughs> <laughs> and she made me get a studio offsite." <laughs> <laughs> so, That's great. That's a great story. And uh, we're going to shake it out of you as to who it is. I'm guessing Jimmy Iovine. I'm not telling. Okay. Okay. No. Well, you're a better man than I am. Anyway, coming up next, an interview that lives in Christopher's memory as a disaster. But was it really? We both weigh in when Famous Lost Words continues. Famous Lost Words is brought to you by Alarm Force. Managing your home is a lot of work, but securing it doesn't have to be. Let the professionals at Alarm Force take home security off your to-do list. With Alarm Force, you can rely on professional installation, dependable products, and industry-leading customer service. They provide protection for burglary, fire, and flood with a suite of smart home products like door locks, lighting, and thermostat, all controlled from anywhere in the world with the Alarm Force mobile app. No charge for installation with packages starting from only $29.99. Call 1-800-267-2001 or learn more at alarmforest.com. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic, and we're digging up some of the great interviews from inside our archives, most of which have not been heard since they were first aired. 
Okay, Christopher, so you said in your book, Is This Live?, that when you finished your interview with Elvis Costello, you thought it was one of your worst, but you've reconsidered in retrospect. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I was really excited to do that interview. It was a hard one to get. Um, and it was a big moment in his career. Um, a lot had been happening. He'd set up the um, collaboration with McCartney. He'd moved over to Warner Brothers Records. There was a kind of a whole reboot of Elvis Costello's career. And, and I was just excited. I was also working on a series on uh, songwriters. So he was, you know, a fantastic uh, person to be able to speak with. Mm-hmm. But he was tough as nails and just full of spit and snarl. And I felt kind of intimidated. I thought, oh, God, I must have asked all the wrong questions to get this kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until maybe like 25 years later I had the nerve to go back and actually look at the interview. Mm-hmm. And I realized it was pure, great rock and roll entertainment. It really was. And, you know, the funny thing is, is I read about that interview and then I listened to the clips the other day and actually they, they came with video so I could actually see his face. And, you know, the like the answers are excellent that you're about to hear. And he's really like on top of what he's saying. Um, but I can get there's a bit of a sneer on his face. And so you think that he's kind of talking down to you like, like I can't believe you just asked that. And yet he's giving really good answers. So, you know, let's get to it. Let's, uh, let's have a listen to some of those clips because I certainly didn't think it was a terrible interview. I've done terrible interviews. I've been there, and that wasn't one of them. <laughs> well, in 1989, Costello released Spike, his first album for Warner. He had a big enough budget to record in London, Dublin, New Orleans, and L.A., and to bring in session players every stop of the way. He also featured guests like Roger McGuinn of The Birds, Chrissy Hind, um, Willie Green from The Neville Brothers, and a co-writer called Sir Paul McCartney. (laughs) Um, When I spoke with him, Elvis was at his irascible best. There had been a lot of hype and expectations surrounding that collaboration between Costello and Paul McCartney. He talked about how it got set up in the first place. Well, it sort of went like this. I got this call, said, would I go to have a tea one afternoon? And I went into his office and he had a jukebox on. He played me an Al Jolson record and said, do you want to write some songs then? And I said, yes. And that was it, really. I mean, there wasn't much to discuss, you know. Uh, then we got together, started with two guitars and everything in, in the studio and started writing them and he had a song which he hadn't finished I had a couple of songs which I had started and uh, we worked on those as a way of you know finding out a bit about each other's methods and from then on you know we just went ahead and wrote a bunch more songs some of which are I guess are going to be on his record so the, his contribution to these tracks on my record are perhaps uh, less in the inspirational side and more on the sort of technical side of how to phrase things and how to make a transition musically and I think they're the better for it, you know, there's no way, there's no secretary going and then Mr McCartney said let's have the B-flat minor, you know, I mean there's nobody in the corner doing that so it's hard for me to remember who exactly did what, I know how much I had already written when we started on those two songs but I think you'll have to be a little more patient and wait to hear the the, the songs that go on his record to hear the uh, the true collaboration. And in a brief but pungent comment on metal music, <laughs> Elvis gets his place in When Rock Stars Attack. I never consider heavy metal music. Why should I? It never considers me. <laughs> it's boring. It's, uh, it's, you know... It's boring music for boring people. By boring people. I'm just amazed it's still around, that's all. Don't blame me. I don't make heavy metal music. I hate Led Zeppelin and everything they've spawned. So, I mean, 
you know. Oh my goodness, he is nuts. <laughs> He is great, man. <laughs> that is a great clip. I just love it. And uh, just that sneering quality. And it's just so, like, condescending and beautiful at the same time. Well, one of the things that I loved about it, in retrospect, mm-hmm. was that he says exactly what he thinks. I mean, it's so often you're interviewing somebody and there's this, you know, diplomatic dance of, well, you know, we're not really allowed to talk about that right now, man. You know, that sort of thing. And it's like, oh, please, just, you know, tell me what you really think. Exactly. Well, Elvis Costello did tell me what he really thought. I know. He was the uh, fr- the forerunner of the Gallagher brothers. <laughs> Very much so. Um, I asked how he looks back on his past work, and then I ducked. Um, and this led to a, a very amusing dissertation on the word rock. I don't look back at it. You seem to have been very almost unforgiving about your own previous work. You say that you wrote too many songs and made too many albums. Well, why is that? You just tough on yourself? Well, no, I, I say that one day, but then the next day you might ask me and I might say, no, they're all fantastic. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, it's just the mood I'm in at the moment, you know. I don't have any set opinions. My opinions about things are not set in concrete, like some people seem seem to. You know, there's, you know, the worst thing that ever happened, in my opinion, was about 1969. They coined this word rock. You know, before it was used to be called rock and roll, and then they thought rock and roll had kind of been around since like '55 or something. So we had to find a new name for it. And the minute they took the roll out of it, that, that's when that's when a lot of the lights went out for me. You know. Uh, I think rock and roll is a euphemism for sex, you know? And that's a beautiful kind of joyous human sort of thing. And a rock is a thing you dig up in the ground. It doesn't move, it doesn't breathe, it doesn't dance around, doesn't buy you a drink, you know? And ro- and rock is really what is responsible for most of the boredom of today, I think. So, you know, I, I can't really... I can't really look back on my own stuff because everything is set in this kind of conception of rock it's like a big rock and roll Mount Rushmore, you know, with Jimmy and, you know, talented people have been set up there as well as untalented people. You've got, you know, you've got the two Jimmys, you know, you've got, the, you know, Jimmy Page or Jimi Hendrix or, you know, Jimmy somebody else, you know. And, so. and I just, I, I just don't think it's any fun. I want it to be alive. I want the music jumping around the room at me and sort of crawling across the floor, you know, with its tongue hanging out. But I can't think of it like... Um, a history lesson. I'm not interested in getting into any time machine. Oh man! And oh, that yeah. well, that's like having an English teacher like just tear apart something that you've written. Uh, you know what? Though it was great, <laughs> um, and he had no reluctance whatsoever in sharing with me his thoughts on making music video. The throwaway attitude of them was a lot more um, honest. Uh, you know, we were honestly just sort of larking about to the song because after all, it's. What is it? It, You're standing there, they're playing your record, which uh, might mean the world to you, but it's coming through a speaker about this big, you know? It sounds like... And you're supposed to look like you're giving it your all and the veins are bulging out on the side of your neck with the intensity of the performance you're giving. I mean, don't make me laugh. I mean, it's you're lip-syncing, you're pretending to sing a song, pretending to play a guitar that isn't plugged in. You know, or you're pretending to be Humphrey Bogart and there's dry ice all around you. It's not real fog. It's movies. You know, it's an illusion. You should treat it with some humor. I mean, it was only when the big budgets came in that they had to justify the big budgets with the big concepts, you know. So we would be in Hawaii on between our Canadian tour and our Japanese tour and 
we'd get up at seven in the morning and go to the beach and run around and jump in the surf and that would be the video and whether it had anything to do with the song was kind of irrelevant it was just a piece of film to play mm. and I think the videos were much more fun when they were like that the minute people started getting the idea that they could you know be their favorite movie star in in the video that was a real mistake that's really great stuff, Christopher. Elvis Costello and you in conversation. And that really is indicative of the way a lot of artists felt about making videos around that time. Well, they may have thought that, but they still made them. <laughs> and they still benefited from them. Mm-hmm. And something that they found out a little belatedly in a lot of cases is they also paid for them. Oh, yeah. And they didn't know that at the time. So they're burning off hundreds of thousands of dollars. They think it's record company money and the record company is just keeping uh, very full accounting of what that means to the bottom line. And they take it out of there as in the artist's bottom line. Right. Absolutely. Now, usually at the time, videos were what they call 50 percent recoupable meaning that the um, label would carry the burden of half the cost and the artist would carry the rest. Now, the label paid for it all up front, so it was that sort of feeling like, oh, hey, woohoo, this is this is free. But, of course, at the end of the day, it's not. Were the artists uh, blindsided by this, or did they know? Were they kind of told in a, in a kind of a, in a whispery way, or were they were they told and they just kind of... I don't know, they just felt like they were rolling in money and it was going to be okay? I think more of the latter, actually. <laughs> um, sadly, I, I think the ability of artists to delude themselves is like a bottomless well. Uh, maybe it's part of the business. <laughs> maybe it's part of the way that you kind of build yourself up to feel like you've got something that's worth the attention of millions of people. But it was always in the contract. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was there in black and white. It was probably on you know page 17, you know, partway down through, you know, paragraph four, subsection yeah. 31. Wow. But, you know, it said the cost of mu- making music videos is 50% recoupable. But you just didn't feel like you were spending your own money. Right. You know, often you'd gotten an advance, which was more money than you dreamt you'd ever see in your life. And the record company was putting out this money. They must know what they're doing. They wouldn't spend it if they weren't going to make it back, right? Mm-hmm. Well, not always. Wow. And of course, you played many of those videos on Much Music, and um, you tell the story quite well about how important the uh, debut and the regular rotation play of those videos on Much Music was and what it meant to the artists. I mean, particularly the Canadian artists, because before, I mean, you had to trudge through, you know, thousands of miles of geography to go find an audience, one town at a time. That's sort of the tried and true way of building a career. But what happened is when we were given a video, even by, say, a local band or a band that was only having regional success, and we played it, particularly if we gave it a good rotation, they had, um, you know, an awareness across the country instantaneously overnight, and it made a huge, unbelievable difference in their careers. Mm -hmm. I bet it did. Christopher, we've lost a lot of musicians and songwriters and legends in the past few weeks, months, and years, and it's been pretty alarming. Yeah. Even as we record these shows a few days and weeks in advance, there's always the chance that we will lose one of the very artists that we are talking about. Boy, that's really hit uh-huh. home recently. And one of the artists we lost yeah. was Glenn Campbell, and so much has been said and written about Glenn after his passing. And one of my favorite moments in my entire life happened because of a Glenn Campbell concert. And my story about that day is the story that I pull out at a party. And I'm going to tell it to you. I'm not going to tell it to you today. But I am going to tell you my Glenn Campbell oh. story one of these times. Um, of <laughs> okay. course, Of course, one of the people who is linked to Glenn Campbell is songwriter Jimmy Webb. 
who wrote a bunch of songs for Glenn, including Wichita Lineman, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, and Galveston. And you had the great pleasure of interviewing Jimmy. I did. And as you say, Tom, the man responsible for more of those hits than any other writer is Jimmy Webb. And he wrote a lot of big songs for a lot of artists, everything from Up, Up and Away to MacArthur Park. Um, His tribute to Glenn Campbell came while the singer was still alive. He has given my music to the public because if it was left up to me, they they probably never would have heard any Jimmy Webb songs. But he, he has a way of taking something that I've written and putting it right on the table, right there by the newspaper, right there with the ham and eggs in the, in the morning paper, making it accessible, putting it right there in the, in, in the, in the American home, so to speak, mm. so that they can, they can assimilate it and they can understand it. Was he the first to do The Moon is a Harsh Mistress? I think he was. I think he was. I think it was either him or me. One of them. Either, either, I think it was, maybe it was him, but it was very close between the two of us. As a pop song, it's such an adventurous song conceptually. I guess it didn't seem like the kind of thing that he would naturally do, but again, when I went back and listened to it, it was a real revelation to hear the way he sang that song. Well, he's, I think he's, an, sadly enough, and I, I almost hesitate to say this, but I won't. He's, he's, under, he's underestimated. He's underrated. He's one of our greatest entertainers, one of our greatest singers one of our greatest arrangers in America. And yet he's sort of taken for granted. It's like when you've got a lot of a good thing, you know, you just, well, of course, it's, of course Glenn sings great. You know, and you just take it for granted that it's always in tune and it sounds good. And it's, you know, well, that's kind of the way we are, you know, down south of the border sometimes, you know. Uh, too much of a good thing and we don't pay much attention to it anymore. We move on to the next thing. But Glenn is always going to be there because his goodness runs deep. His playing, his singing, and his, and his, his heart, his, his humanity runs deep. So he'll always be there, I think. Now here, Webb talks about writing one of the classic songs that Glenn Campbell had a hit with, Wichita Lineman. But it sort of comes to me that in, in visual images, snaps, like Wichita Lineman was a snap. I was up driving in the panhandle of Oklahoma on some real flat ground where you can see for miles up close to liberal Kansas and looked down a very flat country road with a line of telephone poles going into infinity. We've all seen that. And it was that kind of picture, except in the middle of this picture was a little guy you know, perched on top of the telephone pole. He had his little truck parked, and he was up there. And there wasn't another human being for a hundred miles in any direction except me and him. And I went by, and I looked at him up there, and suddenly I wondered what that moment crystallized for me, the loneliness of it, the starkness of it, and the fact that who, what was he doing? Who was he talking to? And I saw that he had one of those little phone receivers, and that he was patched into, in just that glimpse, as he was patched into the wire. He was listening to something on the wire. And then I knew that there would be a song about that. Or that if if I could write it, there would be a song. I am a lineman for the county. Now, Christopher, you are, you know, a big fan of all kinds of music. And so am I. You know, I love hard rock, I love soft rock, I love pop and you know, the funk and everything. But I gotta tell you, Wichita Alignment is maybe the most beautiful song ever written. And it's so well produced and so well performed and so well written by Jimmy Webb. It's just one of my favorites. 
I adore that song. I'm yeah. right with you. And the Wichita lineman. And it's funny, he kind of wrote it to order, too. It's it's interesting as a follow-up. It was another song that had to have a title of a town in it, yeah. <laughs> like by the time I get to Phoenix. That's right. Um, I asked Jimmy Webb, actually, if he had ever tried to consciously compose a hit song as opposed to just trying to write a good one. And the answer surprised me. But one thing's for sure. If you sit down and say, I am only writing this song for the radio. I'm just writing this song for the radio. All I want is a hit. Mm. I think your chances of really, really writing a uh, classic song, great song, are somewhat diminished by that. I'd like to think so. There's something <laughs> ugly about that premeditation, you know? <laughs> Even though if I, I'm not, I've done it, mind you, I've done it because, you know, there have been times in my life when I've been desperate for a hit. You know, I'm just like anybody else. Did you succeed? Well, I, I wrote Wichita Lineman as a follow-up to By the Time I Get to Phoenix, and it was a pretty big record. And it's a beautiful but that's, song. <laughs> but that's that's one of the few times that I've ever sort of cooked a song for a particular artist. You know, it's it's strange to think that a writer responsible for so many great songs would be haunted by a lyric in his most successful song. Listeners, beware. There will be cake, there will be rain, and this will result in sweet green icing. <laughs> The original version of MacArthur Park by Richard Harris was a huge hit and perhaps the one that is most remembered today, but the honors for the highest chart position goes to the Donna Summer version. I mean, disco wasn't my, wasn't my favorite you know, <laughs> period in American mu mu music, but that particular record, I mean, she just, you know, she aced it. I mean, it's, it's as good as you can sing it. Yeah. I mean, she's just got unbelievable pipes. And so I was happy with the performance, and then I was even happier when I saw it go to number one, which was the first number one record that I ever had, or have ever had since. So I was very happy about it. The original was number two with a bullet, but it never... Didn't peak, huh? Never no. hit the top spot. So yeah. I was very happy about it. We talked In about... In fact, what I did was I hired a limousine and I got a tape of Donna Summer's record, and I just put it on the thing, and I told the driver, I said, just drive me around Hollywood. I have a number one record. <laughs> you know. You were and entitled. I, <laughs> and I just drove around just saying to myself, I have a number one record. I have a number one record. You know, and uh, Champagne I really for the songwriter. enjoyed myself. You know what I mean? <laughs> just for a few minutes, you know? It's okay. More champagne, Mr. Webb. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay, so there you go. There's Jimmy Webb, both regretful that he ever wrote that line, but also pretty proud that it created so much conversation and a massive number one hit. And it's ironic that of all the songs that Jimmy Webb wrote, um, that's the one, MacArthur Park by Donna Summer, that went to number one. Now, listen, I, I love Jimmy Webb, as I've already stated, but I got to tell you, I actually kind of think he should have at least one of his Grammys taken away for writing MacArthur Park. That's just my feeling on the topic. Oh. Call me crazy. <laughs> Call me that crazy. That is cold. <laughs>
<laughs> Sorry, buddy, I feel that way. Man, <laughs> that's outrageous. Well, you know what? Tom Chokic, <laughs> I am truly surprised by you. I mean, you know what? It's not my favorite song of his either, but yeah. you know what? We all write some good ones, and, and sometimes the ones that people record are not the ones you think they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had that experience. And you just, you know what? You just close your mouth and <laughs> wait for the check. Well, I bet you do. And <laughs> uh, and like you say, you can never tell what's going to be a hit. And uh, only a few people have ever written, uh, you know, more than one. Of course, most of us have never written any at all. So, so hats off to Jimmy Webb. I just uh, love his songwriting. That's a good song. Okay, Christopher, I want to play a couple of clips from the 1980s. This first one is from Peter Gabriel, and we have a few interviews from Peter from the past, and we will definitely share the highlights with you in coming weeks. But right now, it's just one clip about one song, and that song is Games Without Frontiers, the song you're hearing. And uh, so let's let's hear what Peter Gabriel has to say about how that song came about. Well, uh, originally, that's a subtitle for a European TV program which is called It's a Knockout in England. And in France, it's called Je Sans Frontières. Not She's So Funky, yeah, as some <laughs> people uh, seem to think. Uh, or Spiel on a Grenzen in German. And it goes all across Europe and is uh, consists of groups of towns and villages and cities sending teams to compete at this sort of bizarre sporting event where people tend to dress up in fancy costumes and throw balls about and get wet a lot of the time. Um, And beneath all this jolly uh, fun is a fairly powerful seam of uh, nationalism. And uh, that was the starting point, just to take the phrase, the title, Games Without Frontiers, and work off that. And so the lyric was really... um, the idea that uh, uh, perhaps adults seen as as kids. So there you go, Games Without Frontiers, and that's Kate Bush, by the way, singing that high part that she's yeah. so funky, yeah, Je Sans Frontières. Yeah, the Je Sans Frontières was, the, of course, the translation of Games Without Frontiers, but people at the time thought she was singing She's So Popular. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there's a whole bunch of mistaken lyrics we could get into, and we will one of these days. Also, Kate Bush joined Peter Gabriel for the song Don't Give Up uh, from the So album, and right. that is a beautiful song, too. Do you know who, who who was offered the job of doing that first? No. Dolly Parton. No way. There's no way that that's true. Way. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and, and here's the best part. She turned him down. Wow. Wow. What yeah. would that have sounded like? That would have been really unusual. That would have been like Dusty Springfield with the Pet Shop Boys. Or would have been like um, Tammy Wynette with KLF uh, doing that dance song. It would have been unusual, but it might have just worked. Yeah. So now let's go back to 1988 and a clip from this guy. On a morning from a got movie In a country where they turn back That, of course, is Year of the Cat by Al Stewart, by far his biggest hit, and what a great song that was. Uh, Great saxophone work in that song, too. But when we talked to Al a few years later, he told us that many people thought that he had returned to the charts 
with this song. Okay, okay, okay. So, can you hear it? Can you hear how Al Stewart <laughs> yeah. sounds like the guy from Pet Shop Boys? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. So, okay, so it's Al Stewart. Um, and it sounds like he's singing lead on West End Girls, which, of course, is by Pet Shop Boys. And when we spoke to Al, right. he told us his story about mistaken identity. Okay, West End Girls came out. I walked out of a hotel, and it was like, you know, it's early in the morning, and I can't see, even see straight. I'm staggering out with my luggage, and the doorman comes up to me. He says, love your new record. I'm like, what, what, is he, what is this man talking about, you know? And I, and I said, what record? I made a record. You know, he says, oh, West End Girls. And that was my first, you know, that was the first time that happened. And then mm-hmm. immediately after that, there was a sort of blitzkrieg in, in the newspapers. I was getting press cuttings from all over the place uh, from the Pet Shop Boys who were extremely miffed at the idea of being compared with me, you know, so they didn't like it at all. <laughs> and uh, I got a little mileage out of it for a while. And then for a while, people said, why haven't you made a record for a while? And I said, it's because the Pet Shop Boys borrowed my voice. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Al Stewart of the Pet Shop Boys. Wow. And it's pretty funny that the Pet Shop Boys were mortified to think that they sounded like Al Stewart, which is which is just great in itself. Well, and after the, you know, huge hit that he had, I wouldn't be too ashamed to sound like yeah. that, but, you know. Okay, time now to focus in on a big song from the charts from many years ago, actually 1994, and the song is All I Want to Do by Sheryl Crow. And we do have a full Sheryl Crow interview to uh, play for you in the in the coming weeks, but we pulled out this segment of it because she just talks about how that song came to be. Colored snapshot of L.A. in the 90s. And you have to remember that when we wrote this song, we just had the Rodney King riots, <clears throat> and Clinton had just been elected, so President Bush was out. And everything was changing so rapidly. And um, we wrote the, the music first, and it was one of the only songs on the record that I didn't have lyrics for to begin with. And because of that, I picked up this poem called All I Want to Do and recited the lyric, thinking that later on I would rewrite the lyrics. And uh, I wrote five sets of lyrics for it, but man, the first one was the spontaneous lyric. So I called the poet up and said, you know, can I use this lyric? And that was the story. What's the name of the poet? Uh, the name of the poem was named, it was called Fun, although I rewrote most, or quite a bit of it, and uh, the poet's name was Wynn Cooper. Cause all I wanna do is have some fun, I got a feeling I'm not the only one. There you go, Cheryl Crow and All I Wanna Do, the story behind that song. Great story. Before we go, it's time for some cool song facts, little known facts about great songs. Okay, Tom, what major inside song knowledge are you going to drop on us today? Okay, Christopher, well, let's start with this. We just heard from the Pet Shop Boys a few minutes ago. PETA once asked the Pet Shop Boys to change their name to the Rescue Shelter Boys, but the Pet Shop Boys turned them down. (laughs) Isn't that great? And earlier we were talking about Glenn Campbell. Did you know that Glenn Campbell, Stephen Stills, and Charles Manson all failed auditions to be in The Monkees. That was back in the mid to late 60s. They all auditioned for that role. And I think that's the role that Peter Tork got. All right. And let me see here. Um, Barry White with the deep voice. When Barry White was a young man, he was in jail and he was listening to the song It's Now or Never by Elvis on the radio. And he said that that experience changed the course of his life. And he credits Elvis for that. And Christopher, in an upcoming episode, we're going to be talking with Elton John. So here's a little bit of Elton John trivia for you. Elton auditioned to be the lead singer of King Crimson 
and Gentle Giant, and he was turned down by them both. In the words of Johnny Carson, I did not know that. <laughs> and there's more where that came from on Twitter, at Cool Song Facts. Well, that does it for this episode of Famous Lost Words. Our show is produced by Adam Karsh. Thank you, Adam. Listen to past episodes with more great interviews on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Join us next time on Famous Lost Words.